If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today's interview is with Professor Marion Turner of the University of Oxford. She's the author of Chaucer, A European Life, which is among the books shortlisted for this year's Wolfson History Prize. Marion spoke to our world history editor, Matt Elton, about her new take on the 14th century poet's life, and the surprisingly cosmopolitan world in which he lived. For people who may only have heard of the Canterbury Tales, what what are the headlines about Chaucer that you think people should know? Or if you had to explain his extraordinary life and career really briefly, how, how would you do that? So Chaucer had an incredibly interesting life. He was a diplomat. He travelled very, very widely all over Europe, which people usually don't expect from someone in the 14th century. He lived through the plague. He lived through the Great Revolt. He lived through the usurpation of the throne. He was also an extraordinary innovator. So he invented the iambic pentameter, for example, which became the key poetic line in English. He also wrote a huge variety of poetry in all kinds of different genres. He was far more versatile than almost any author that we've ever known across 
across history. And he was reading texts that no one else was reading. He was incredibly widely read in Italian, in French, in Latin, in many, many different languages. And so he really brought something very new to English literature and to English culture in all kinds of ways. And your biography uh, explores his life through a certain lens, doesn't it? I mean, what, how, how did you go about writing this particular biography? So when I first started thinking about writing the biography, I initially assumed that I would write it in a traditional cradle to grave kind of way. And then quite quickly, I realised that I just couldn't tell the kinds of stories that I really wanted to tell through that structure. And I went for a walk and I was walking round and round this meadow thinking, how can I make this book work? And while I was walking through these beautiful um, trees and fields, I actually then thought places, spaces. That's how I can really get across what is interesting and special about Chaucer. And it's how I can also get to grips with his imagination. So I decided I'd structure the book through places and spaces. So each chapter is a place. Some of them are real places that he went to, such as Genoa and Florence or Navarre in northern Spain or Reims and Calais. And some of them are structures, things like the great household or the inn, which we don't have in the same form today. But living and moving inside those kinds of structures, I think, really formed what it meant to be a person, the sense of what one's identity was in the 14th century. And then some are more imaginative structures, metaphors that mattered to Chaucer, things like the cage or the threshold. And once I was able to use those spaces, I really felt I could get to grips with thinking about Chaucer's imagination. So although the book is still roughly chronological, it freed me a bit to think in, in more flexible ways. Do you think that Chaucer's life, or perhaps the 14th century more generally, particularly lends itself to being explored through the prism of places? And that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that you you could do it, I think, for other for all kinds of other eras as well. I think that perhaps it's particularly good for Chaucer because he was so very widely travelled, because he did so many interesting things, had so many different jobs went to so many places and different languages were so important to him. So it really, really matters for understanding Chaucer to get a sense of how multinational, multilingual his life was. I think also specifically about the 14th century is that this was a time of enormous change. So when Chaucer was about six, the Black Death hit. And of course, thinking about plagues feels horribly relevant right now, although the plague was far, far worse than what we're experiencing. But the plague hit and it caused enormous social change and not necessarily the changes that you might expect. So there was a lot of social mobility in the wake of the, in the wake of the plague. All kinds of things happened so that people started to live in different ways. More people moved to cities. People were able to buy more expensive clothes because people were, were labor was now more in demand so people could get higher wages. Um, so there's lots of changes in the way that people lived as the 14th century moves on. What do we know about Chaucer's earliest years? So Chaucer was born in London, in Vintry Ward in London, um, so right on the riverfront, because his father was a vintner, a wine merchant. And that in itself is very interesting and important to think about Chaucer, that he came from a mercantile background. He came from the city. And we know quite a lot about his 
grandparents, his extended family, about where they lived. So his grandmother was living in the Spice area of London, for instance. And there's a certain amount we can do to try to, to recreate those early years. So this was a time in which there was enormous trade from right across the Silk Road and into Europe. So in London at this time, you could buy spices that had come from Indonesia, for instance. It was an extremely cosmopolitan place for someone to be brought up. And again, because he was brought up in this mercantile quarter, he was mixing with Italians a lot. And that is really absolutely crucial for Chaucer that he learned Italian. And so that later in life, he was then able to read poetry that no one else in England was reading. So his very early years, we know that he was in London. And then when he was a teenager, we know that he got his first job. And so this is the first life record specifically about Geoffrey that we have is a very, it, first of all, it's a very surprising life record because it's not about him as a poet. It's not about him as a customs officer, the job he had later. It's just about someone buying him some clothes. And so this first record that we have, we just learned that this boy of about 15 was bought some clothes. Everyone knew about that life record for a long time. But I started to think about, well, what, what does this life record really mean? What were these clothes? Who was buying them for him? And then I found out that it was this older woman who was his employer was buying him these scandalous items of clothing. So very, very tight leggings and this very short tunic, Poltok. And when I looked into contemporary chronicles, lots of chroniclers were writing about these specific items of clothing and saying that they were outrageous, that young men were showing off their bodies in an indecent way. And some even said that this, this was the cause of the plague coming to England, that God was sending a punishment to England because young men were dressing so appallingly and outrageously. And I really love this anecdote because on the one hand, we get this sense of nothing really changes. You know, older people go around saying, oh, the youth of today, they're all outrageous. It's all their fault. And look at these terrible clothes that they wear. It wasn't like that when I was young. But on the other hand, it's not familiar at all because this is a young boy who's living in a household. He doesn't get to choose what he wears. He hasn't bought these clothes himself. He lives in a world where he's not paid in wages. He's paid in clothes, in bedding, in food. And he has to do what his very rich employers want him to do. He's living in a way that's completely alien to us. He doesn't have a private room. He doesn't have his own privacy, his own space. He lives in a way that we have to make a big imaginative leap to get our heads into. And that, I think, is part of the absolute fascination of studying the past is that frisson between the what's recognizable, what's understandable to us, or what we really have to work to understand that people did live in different ways. And making that imaginative leap is really important for us to try to get inside other people's shoes, even when those shoes have extraordinarily long toes. I mean, how, how did you go about researching Chaucer and his life and his world, I suppose? Well, we're very lucky in terms of looking at Chaucer because compared to someone such as Shakespeare, we have an enormous amount of information about Chaucer's life. And the reason for that is that he was a civil servant and England is very, very good at bureaucracy. So we have about 500 life records, so specific pieces of information about Chaucer's life. Now, most of them are quite dry initially, they seem dry, but then they they hide nuggets of information so that you've got what might seem like a record which is might seem quite dull. It's just telling you what he was paid for going on a trip. 
But then you realize that he was being paid by the day. So we can work out exactly how long it took him to get to Italy, how long he spent there. And then you can look into what he might have done there. And so what I would often do would be I'd take the initial record. So for instance, the record, very, very short, brief record, which is his safe conduct when he was in Northern Spain. And then I looked at the records from Northern Spain from the exact same week and found out well, what was happening when he was there. What other records were issued on that day by Charles, the, the king at the time? What else happened? So to try to really get a granular picture of this world that he was in, what was he seeing? What was he doing? What were the buildings like that he was moving through? What were the exact manuscripts that he was, he was reading? So to try to situate him in all of these different places and spaces and try to expand my sense of what records might be relevant for thinking about Chaucer's life. And of course, for a literary biography, you're looking at so many different things because you're looking at all the texts that he wrote, his sources, where might he have got them? What were they like? As well as all the historical information. And for writing a biography, I mean, it's really wonderful because you get to write about history of art, architecture, more, more obvious kinds of history as well, but also literary criticism, philosophy. There's, there's so many different kinds of things that are relevant for Chaucer's life. I mean, after his entry into the great household as quite a young man, what mm. positions did he hold and how, how did these experiences shape his worldview, I suppose? Yeah, so he had lots of different kinds of jobs. So he was attached to the king's household for most of his adult life, which didn't mean that he was working in the court for all that time, but mainly that he was available for different kinds of missions. So he was very often sent on negotiations in the continent, for instance, so to negotiate peace treaties, marriages, those kinds of things. He was obviously quite good at diplomacy and he was also a very good linguist. So he went on those kinds of trips. More in a more long-term way, for, he had a job as a customs officer. So he worked at the Wool Custom in London. And that was a really crucial job because at this time, the late 14th century, England's only real export product was wool. Wool was the absolute foundation of England's economy and wool was like gold. So he was working at the heart of the the economics of England, really, um, in, the, in the counting house at the Wool Quay. He was also later on, clerk of the king's works, which meant he was in charge of the infrastructure of buildings such as the Tower of London um, and various of the, of the king's palaces and buildings. So he did lots of bureaucratic jobs. I mean, most of his time in terms of his day jobs, he was doing accounts and you know, checking bureaucracy. Sometimes he was traveling off on glamorous diplomatic missions to Milan and picking up manuscripts, but his life wasn't always like that. So I think we can really see different phases of his life where different kinds of spaces and places influenced him in all kinds of different ways. And he was often traveling. He was doing all kinds of different things. But then I think we can we can see that wherever he was in all the different phases of his life, his life was outward facing. So obvious, that's obvious when he was traveling. But when he was in London, he was sitting there in his office, looking out at the river, watching the boats come in and go out, just as he had when he was a young boy. And he was involved in the exchange of things, of goods between England and the continent, and ultimately much further afield. He was working with people who had come from lots of different countries. So his his job was always, all his different jobs were jobs that involved looking out to the world and then thinking about what the world was bringing into his own country and his own life. 
but he was always sort of looking looking backwards and forwards. You're looking across thresholds. Mm. I mean, in what ways does his outward-facing nature reflect the fact that England was surprisingly European at this point in time? Yeah, absolutely. So at this time, every educated man in England was trilingual. It was a multilingual society. You had to know French and Latin as well as English. And lots of um, lots of women also would have known certainly French and English, if not Latin, so much. Now, of course, this isn't true of your average labourer in the fields. You know, they, of course, are not um, literate, are not speaking many languages. But the world that Chaucer was in was a world that was very much outward facing. The queens that were at the court during Chaucer's lifetime were, first of all, Philippa of Hainaut. Hainaut is not a country that exists now. It's now broken between um, Belgium and France. And then later, Anne of Bohemia. from what's now um, the Czech Republic, and then um, later Isabella of France. She was only a child, so not not important in, in Chaucer's cultural life in the same way. But these queens would come to the court, they would bring their own entourages, they would bring culture from their own countries, and that was very, very important for, for Chaucer's whole environment. The people that he knew were all people, all the people he was friends with, were all people who were interested in poetry, in culture, in thinking about what was going on in high French culture and how that could be transplanted and translated into the English environment. What, how, how does it, his experiences of going to war in 1359 change his view of the world? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting episode in his life because he's probably about 17 at that point, a really young man. And he'd been working for Elizabeth de Burr, Countess of Ulster and her husband, Lionel of Clarence, who was the, the son of the king. So he'd been working as a page in their household. It had all been quite fun, I imagine, you know, traveling around the country, getting bought these wonderful clothes, um, being a, a spectator at all kinds of glamorous events. But then if your employer, if you work in a great household and your employer goes to war, that's what you've now got to do. You can't just hang around in your glamorous clothes anymore. You've got to head off to war with them. So off he goes and the Hundred Years' War was, I think, a pretty miserable war in which to to fight. It was, you know, there was lots of um, just slashing and burning of the countryside. There was, it was, it was miserable and muddy and rainy, and he was, um, and and he was taken prisoner. So he's then taken prisoner, and we don't know exactly what that was like for him. I mean, there was a big ransom culture at this time, and the king paid a ransom to get him back. We don't know exactly how long he was imprisoned for, but probably a few weeks, um, maybe months. Um, so he had that experience of losing his freedom and probably he wasn't being kept in a miserable cell. He was probably being kept in reasonable conditions, but he did learn what it was like not to be free anymore. And we do see later on in some of his poems, he writes, he writes about war he writes about people being taken prisoner in the knight's tale he writes very specifically about the fact that the heroes are not ransomed and that has a very particular meaning in the 14th century context where people would always expect um, noble prisoners to be ransomed i think what's very interesting is that his actual real life experiences and his poetic experiences often go hand in hand so 
when he was in France, one of the things I write about in the book is that he was captured just outside Reims. Meanwhile, inside the city, Machaut was writing poetry. Machaut, who was one of Chaucer's greatest poetic influences. And we see these two great poets literally on either side of the walls. And later on, they both write poems about, about these experiences in all kinds of ways. So we then see lots and lots of poems at the time in which people write about imprisonment in a metaphorical way. They write about love as a prison, for instance. And Chaucer, I think, was getting his his understanding of imprisonment, both from poetry and from his own life. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This interesting young man travelling around, picking up manuscripts and then riding back to England from Italy and inventing a new poetic form when he got back, you know, while wearing his interesting trousers. You know, he was an interesting young guy um, and I'd really like people to, to know more about that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Where else did he travel in Europe and what episodes also really shaped his, his life and his kind of worldview, I suppose? So he travelled many times to France. Um, and We don't often have that many details about those missions, but he often went to France as I said before, particularly to talk about peace and marriages and so on. He had this fascinating trip to Navarre, which was then a separate country in northern Spain. And he went on two trips to Italy. So one of those trips was to Genoa and Florence. And the other trip was to Lombardy. So to Milan, Pavia, northern Italy. 
I think that he had so many fascinating experiences that really shaped the poet he was and the man that he was as well. I think that the Italian trips are particularly important because going to Italy meant, first of all, in terms of politics and life, that he saw these really different ways of running society. So he saw what it was like to live in a city-state, in an oligarchy, in situations without without monarchs, as many of the Italian city-states were, were, um, were structured. But then he also saw what it was like to live in a tyranny. So Lombardy was run by the Visconti tyrants who were absolutely notorious for their appalling, tyrannical, absolutist behaviour. So we saw these different kinds of political models. And I think that was something that Chaucer was very, very interested in. In literary terms, he also encountered Italian poetry. And Dante, Petrarch, Boccaccio, these are crucial influences on Chaucer. And while other people were reading Dante, for instance, in, in England, no one else seems to have been reading Boccaccio apart from Chaucer. So Chaucer encounters these great Italians. He devours their poetry. He certainly got his own copies made or bought his own copies and brought them back to England. And reading the poetry of Dante and Boccaccio in particular not only changed what Chaucer did in his own poetry, but it changed English poetry completely. So lots of the poetic forms that Chaucer developed were derived from Italian poetic forms, for instance. And if we also think about subject matter, the Decameron is a tale collection and I think is a really key influence on the Canterbury Tales. Mm. This is perhaps a stupid question, but I mean, how did he go on to become so influential? Well, I think that there's it's a really important question. And during his own lifetime, Chaucer was certainly respected, admired as a poet. Um, he wasn't influential the way that he was to become influential in later years. So during his own lifetime, I mean, first of all, he has some good connections. And one of those, that really, the really key good connection that he has is John of Gaunt. So he works for John of Gaunt in various ways. Perhaps even more importantly, his sister-in-law was John of Gaunt's long-term mistress and eventually his wife. His own children were brought up very much in Lancastrian households. You know, John of Gaunt is, for many years, the most important man in England. So he's well-connected. He has these um, court positions. He knows people. So people are, are reading his poetry. He has access to people in a courtly environment, but also in a mercantile environment because of this dual role he has, someone who's come from a mercantile background, but then also moves to the court. So he has access. Um, he also, I think, was extremely good, right? That might sound like a stupid thing to say, but it's really important. I mean, uh, he was a brilliant poet and he was innovative and he was interesting and he was diverse. So whatever kinds of things you like, you can find it in Chaucer. If you want to read a, a serious seeming romance, you can find that. If you want to read a very bawdy, rude fabio tale, you can find that. If you want a translation of Boethius's philosophy, if you want some short lyric poems, if you want a saint's life, he does it all. But in his own lifetime, he was not being read in by enormous numbers of people. In the early 15th century, as English becomes more and more important as a language, the new English poets start to promote him more and more, start to talk, talk about him as Father Chaucer at that point. And so this guy who had been this incredibly innovative, interesting, quite edgy poet in lots of ways, starts to be established as a, a kind of patriarchal figure in the early 15th century. And then in the late 15th century, Caxton prints him. So very early on, he wants to print the Canterbury Tales. 
that's partly, again, because they're really good, they're interesting, they're diverse, but it's also important that Chaucer was writing in the London dialect, in the what's, what's known as the East Midland or London dialect, and those were the kinds of texts that Caxter wanted to print. So there are other brilliant poems, such as Gawain and the Green Knight, which was not printed until the 19th century because it was in a Northern dialect. And the North gets left out of canonical English literature um, from a very early day. And um, as you mentioned at the start, some of the places in your book are real physical places and others are more conceptual. There's yeah. a couple that really interest me, which is the Milky Way and the concept of the threshold. How, how do those play into this story? They're quite different, I know, but yeah. how, how do they play into this, this story? So the Milky Way, I mean, I think that people are often intrigued by that because they think, what could someone know about the Milky Way at this in this time? But in poem after poem, Chaucer imagines astral flight. It's something that fascinates him. So he keeps imagining what is it like to fly up to the stars and look down on the earth. And of course, we have all either done that from an aeroplane or I mean, everyone's seen pictures of what the earth looks like from the sky. But of course, no one had in Chaucer's time. It all has to be imagined. And he is absolutely fascinated by that. But I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the way he imagines it is that while lots, lots of other poets, they write about flying up to the spheres. And the point tends to be that you're then free from the body, you're free from the senses, you're free from what's going on in earth. You look down and you laugh. This is the kind of Boethian perspective. You say, okay, now I get what's really important. That's not what happens to Chaucer. So he has his avatar. So a really good example of this is in his poem, The House of Fame, where his avatar, is not exactly the same as him, but is called Geoffrey and is a poet with writer's block who does accounts by day. So Geoffrey is seized by this eagle and the eagle complains about the fact that Geoffrey's a bit fat and difficult to carry and kind of Geoffrey's kind of struggling as the eagle seizes him in his claws and takes him up to the to the stars. And then he looks and, he, and he's then looking down at the, at the world. But Geoffrey is never freed from the concerns of the world. So the stars are compared to the streets in England, for instance. He's still concerned with thinking about his, his bodiliness, his weight, for example. He's not freed from the senses because Chaucer is not a poet that is ultimately interested in talking about philosophy and theology as something divorced from everyday life. He is a poet that is always interested in being in the middle of things. So he'll tend to imagine an astral flight that then take, seems to take him away from things, but then plunges him back in. So in that poem, he then ends in this absolutely chaotic place called the House of Rumour, where everyone is jostling each other and telling lying stories and stepping on top of each other. And there's no authority and it's all chaotic because that sense of being in the middle of things, of the perspective of the of, of the person who's within things is something which I think interests Chaucer more than looking down, being separated. But one thing that's absolutely crucial for Chaucer is the importance of thinking about the fact that your perspective is determined by where you are standing, that there is no way for us humans to have an objective perspective on things. And that is such a fundamental and important lesson, that idea that you have to move around, you have to try to imagine yourself into someone else. You have to try to think about the fact that there are different views on things. And that is, in a way, the absolute key point of the Canterbury Tales, of lots of different people get to tell their own stories. You get lots of different viewpoints. Mm. So was this an idea that was really new at this point? Yeah, I think it was. So 
If we look, for example, at Boccaccio's Decameron, which is another tale-telling collection, he has 10 people get together and they are all going to tell stories. And they're doing this in a context of plague. In fact, they all retreat and completely socially isolate together and tell stories um, 10 a day for 10 days. And the stories are great. It's a brilliant collection. But all 10 tale-tellers are from exactly the same social background. They're all young, beautiful, they're all related to each other or close friends, they're all rich, they're all well off. What Chaucer does, of course, is very different. So his group that get together are a motley crew from all kinds of different backgrounds. So the, the, the highest ranked person is the knight, so not that high, and there's just one plowman. Most of the people are of the middling sort. And they are very different. We've got the miller, we've got the reeve, we've got the wife of Bath, the parson, the pardoner, the lawyer, the merchant, lots of different kinds of people. And the key point of the, of the Canterbury Tales is the idea of listening to stories from lots of different perspectives. You don't have to agree with them. They're not going to be true. You know, no one's going to have the authoritative perspective. Whereas in lots of literature at this time, there is there is a sense that there will be an authoritative perspective. You might push against it, of course. You might not agree, but there will be that sense of an authoritative perspective. And there is also the idea that we should only really listen to people from somewhat elevated backgrounds. But the idea of coming in and the miller saying, well, I'm going to tell a tale that's as good as the knight's. I'm going to beat the knight's tale. That is something that is quite new. The other place that you asked about before is the threshold that I didn't get on to answering, but the threshold. So the chapter where I write about the threshold is partly what I'm talking about, the threshold between life and death and the end of Chaucer's life and the threshold between one um, one reign and the next, Richard II and, and Henry IV. But the threshold is also, I think, important more generally across Chaucer's life. So for many years, for example, he lives on the walls of the city, I mean, literally on the walls. So he lived above Oldgate, that was where his apartment was. And at the same time, he was working on the threshold of the city, so the other border of the city, which is the river. And Chaucer is always on the boundaries between things, on the boundaries between different classes, you know, part mercantile, part courtly, not quite in either, looking in, looking out. And he is a fence sitter. You know, he doesn't like to come down and say, this is what I think. And politically, he doesn't do that. But he also, I think he doesn't feel that that's the role of the poet to say, this is what I think, this is what you should think. He is all about saying, well, look this way, look that way, decide for yourself where you want to be. So he likes to stay on those thresholds, on those boundaries. To what extent was the kind of latter period of his life dedicated to writing the Canterbury Tales? And to what extent was it um, dictated by the fact he'd by this point moved out of London? Yeah, so he was mainly writing the Canterbury Tales in the, the 1390s. So we can see a real, a real difference between the kinds of things he's writing in the 80s and the 90s, very broadly speaking. And so in the early years of the 1380s, so up to about 86, Chaucer writes a huge variety of texts. That's really key. So he's writing in those years, so dream poems, um, Troilus and Crusade, so the, this this great kind of five book romance, the first version of The Legend of Good Women, for instance, um, short poems. He translates um, Boethius's Constellation of Philosophy, writes The House of Fame, The Parliament of Fowls, so lots and lots of different kinds of things. And he writes some things that became some Canterbury Tales. He wrote some of those as standalone texts. 
in the 1390s, so the late 80s and 1390s, although he does do some other things, such as the, the treatise on the astrolabe, for instance, he devotes most of his time to the Canterbury Tales. I think that is partly because he had, perhaps because he had more time on his hands. Um, he was in Kent. He did have various jobs during this time, but he was probably less busy than he had been at the customs house. But I think he was always a very, very prolific writer. You know, he was writing a huge amount before that as well. He was one of these very frustrating people who managed to hold down his day job and then, you know, go home and write off a book of Troilus and Crusade in the evening. So I think it's more about the fact that he devoted himself to the tales more exclusively because he had now found what really, really suited him. You know, he's now found the method that suits him. And of course, the great thing about writing the tales for Chaucer is that it embeds variety within itself. So before that, he'd been doing lots of different kinds of things, but now the tales allowed him to write in different genres and different forms and styles within that one umbrella text, the concept of the Canterbury Tales. If you could encourage uh, people to read more of his work, where would you point them? Which, which things should people read that they probably haven't even heard of or haven't read? So, so first of all, I think the great thing about Chaucer is that there is something for everyone. So it depends on your interests. You know, people do like really different things. And it's very striking that in different eras, different tales have been more popular, for example. But if we're talking about someone who maybe has already read a good chunk of the tales and wants to explore something else, if they want to challenge themselves a bit, um, I would say go for the House of Fame. So the House of Fame is an extraordinary, really experimental poem. And it's incredibly interesting. So it is the story of this dreamer who is trying to, who's got writer's block and is trying to find poetic inspiration and goes on this incredible journey. And it challenges ideas of the canon and fame. And you know, talks about the fact that we need to listen to ordinary people in order to get poetic inspiration. So many people are very surprised by this as a 14th century text. I mean, another wonderful poem, you know, much longer than the House of Fame is Troilus and Crusades. So an extraordinarily beautiful um very tragic, very interesting five book romance. So that's another place that I, I think people could go. That it's, it's surprisingly understudied, I think, compared to the Canterbury Tales, because many people would put it at, at the same level as the Canterbury Tales. Some people would, would even prefer it. Mm. And finally, I suppose, how would you like people to uh, re-understand Chaucer's place in his world and in history more generally? So I'd really like people to think more about what an innovative and interesting era the 14th century is. I mean, I think that as an era, it's surprisingly overlooked because people are focused, people focus a lot on, say, the 16th century. People think things were new then that weren't. So the fact that actually in the 14th century, that's when people in England start to read people such as Petrarch. You know, this isn't something that Wyatt discovers in the, in the 16th century. So I'd like people to think about how interesting and exciting an era the 14th century is, how many things are going on, and how, how much people are, in fact, doing things that we associate with modernity. So this extraordinary trade with all kinds of places in the world, the fact that people are innovating in poetry, that so, so much that is key to later, develop, later literary developments happen in the 14th century, where we have this great rise of literature in English and different poetic forms in English. And I'd really like people to think about Chaucer in this more innovative and outward looking way, because I think people do have quite set in their minds the idea of Chaucer as the father of English literature. And that somehow gives an impression to people that he was 
maybe a little bit boring. You know, people think of him as something that they might have been forced to look at at, at school, that he's the head of the canon and therefore he must be quite serious. And Chaucer was not like that. He was incredibly funny. I mean, incredibly funny. I've, I've never known anyone not find his text hilarious. You know, very, very funny, very varied, very, very original and so, in so many of the things that he, that he did. And I'd like people to think about him as someone who was this interesting young man traveling around, picking up manuscripts and then riding back to England from Italy and inventing a new poetic form when he got back, you know, while wearing his interesting trousers. You know, he was an interesting young guy. Um, he had a lot, he had, you know, a fairly long life for, for, for that that time. And he did lots and lots of different things. And I'd really like people to, to know more about that. That was Marion Turner. Chaucer, A European Life, is out now, published by Princeton University Press. And you can read a version of this interview in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is due to go on sale next week. As I mentioned before, the book has been shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, the winner of which will be announced later this month. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll return on Wednesday, and Stephen Johnson will be delving into the history of piracy. Thank you.